Wow. Man, oh man, oh man. Finally made it to the famous CLC. I've heard lots about you guys. Um, so a little ritual that I do before I get started is uh, I'm going to take a selfie with you guys in it and I'll tell you why in a minute we're going to do this. You guys ready? Okay. So if I, and I'm trying to see everybody, so I'm going to try and go forward a little bit. So let me, let me see your big smiles. Everybody say CLC. Uh, let's try the guys on this side. You guys look much better than the guys in the middle, actually. The, in fact, the guys on that side, you guys look much better than the last two guys. So, you know, congratulations. You've just become my associates in uh, speaking up against dictators because I then post that and I say, hey, these are the people that are sending me to do it. So welcome to the job I do, guys. I'm joking. I am so excited to... Uh, be with you guys, especially because I've heard that one of my close friends uh, has been here speaking with you. His name is Rob Chifokoyo, uh, and uh, that he's visited you before, and I'm told that you liked Rob. Is that right? Well, I am Rob's youth pastor. So I know Rob was here looking sleek. I know he had nice sneakers on, because that's Rob. You know, I know he preached good, because that's Rob. But I know stuff about Rob, okay? Before he was slick, before he was anointed, and before he was preaching, I know stuff about Rob. So I hope that he said good stuff about me, because if he didn't, I'm gonna spend the rest of this message talking about Rob. No, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm always amazed at uh, um, the story uh, of Rob Chifokoyo because uh, apart from what he endured and uh, the miracle God placed in his life and what God has called him to do, um, and apart from the fact that he was that one kid in our youth group that I never thought God would do anything amazing with, uh, Rob, and I'm, I don't say that in a nasty way, you know, Rob, 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 I gave Rob a ride home every time after we were done youth group, and, you know, Rob was just a regular kid, he was just there for the girls, you know, <laughs> he just came to the youth group for that, but it's amazing to see what God has done with it, but apart from all of that, Rob is the guy that introduced me to, to Bob and to Liz, and uh, since then, that relationship has grown stronger and stronger, and, um, um, you know, Bob and, and Liz and uh, many folks around him have been part of some of the journey that I have walked and gone through. So I'm excited to meet you guys. He's told me so much about the CLC family that I had to come and see you for myself and bear witness. Uh, and what I've seen already is, uh, is amazing and I feel, like I'm, I feel like I'm home. With that, shall we pray before we start this morning? My Father, my God, thank you for the privilege to stand with your people, your people that care, that, that love the way you said they must love, the ones who continue to serve and represent you. Thank you for the opportunity to, to meet them, to encourage them, and to, and to pursue you together with them. Thank you for the opportunity to serve our world together with them. And so this morning I ask, my Lord, that my tongue would be as the pen of a ready writer, ready to inscribe upon the hearts of men and women today. Holy Spirit, I ask that you would be present as we minister, that you would touch our hearts, that you would touch my heart anew, that you would speak even a fresh word now as I attempt to bring ministry Minister to me as well, as you always do. Thank you, my Lord. Amen. Well, I am trying to figure out exactly where to start, and uh, I hope that at some point that the things I'm going to say will minister to you, will challenge you, and will build you up. So for the next three hours, I'm just going to... I'm, <laughs> So, I come from Zimbabwe. My story begins 
in 2016. Well, the particular story I will tell you today begins in 2016. Now, I was pastoring a church, a very small church in Harare, the capital city of Zimbabwe. Our nation had gone through so much at that point. Zimbabwe had been ravaged by so many different tragic scenarios. We had had the same president for almost 40 years. He was a brutal man, a harsh dictator who dealt with his people treacherously in every way you could imagine. I'll give you an example is in 2008, after he had lost an election, many uh, people faced violence because of having voted against him. And the way in which he punished the people that voted against him was to go into the areas and make them choose a punishment that he called long sleeve and short sleeve. And it's a punishment in which you choose whether your limb on your arm is chopped off at the wrist or chopped off at the elbow. To remind you that when you vote next time with the remaining hand, you will vote correctly. In 2008, the economy in Zimbabwe crashed so badly that our inflation was running at 230 million percent per annum. We ended up with a $100 trillion note. $100 trillion on one note. And at the height of inflation, that was not enough to buy a loaf of bread. That's how bad things had gotten in Zimbabwe. I remember my parents had retired and they had some savings in the bank. It wasn't a lot of money by standards here, but by Zimbabwean standards, it was enough to retire on. They had about $80,000 saved in the bank. When that inflation hit, they literally woke up the next day after being barred from taking money from the banks because the government stopped anyone from withdrawing money as inflation hit. They woke up the next day from $80,000 with 25 cents. But there was little people could do in Zimbabwe because of the fear, because of what we had seen happen to people that stood up, because of what we had seen happen to people that spoke up against the injustice that was happening. In the mid-90s, our nation was ravaged by the HIV and AIDS pandemic. What we saw happen with COVID for us was really a, re a replay of something we had seen happen earlier. We were burying our young people in their dozens. And I'll never forget as a youth pastor, every week making our way to the cemetery to bury young people from our own young adults group. Our health infrastructure in Zimbabwe had been destroyed so badly to the point that you could not get a paracetamol tablet for a headache in the hospital. You could not get bandages. People slept on the floor in the hospital. In 2016 itself, our main hospitals had no running water to the point that the women who were coming to give birth would be asked to come with a bucket of water from home so that they could be washed when they give birth. We launched a campaign from our church to try and help women who were coming to give birth who had nothing. And we would prepare what we call baby care packs. And inside the, 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 this, this baby care pack, would be, it, would, it would be a dish that the mother could wash their child. And inside, we put the basic essentials they would need for the first 30 days of caring for their child. We put 30 or 40 diapers in there. But we put some warm clothes in there. We put some towels. We put some care products for mommy to look after herself after having given birth, because the hospital would give them nothing. 
I'll never forget the one incident when we went and there was a woman who had given birth and she was sitting up in the hospital and she was topless holding her child. And I didn't understand and I asked the nurse why, what, why is she topless? And she said to me that she has nothing to wrap her child in so she took her blouse off to wrap her child in. And in 2016, I was sitting in my small church office after having been quiet for years in our country, watching this happen and trying to mind my own business as a good citizen. Because sometimes you try to ignore what's happening around you in the hope that it does not affect you. But on this particular day in April of 2016, I couldn't get away from the fact that the very poverty, the very hardship that had ravaged many people in the country was now knocking at my own door. And as a father of two children, I was now failing to provide for my family. And I sat up in my small office in Harare and I propped up my phone against my Bible and I grabbed the Zimbabwe flag, which I have here with me today. And I held it up as I looked into the lens of this video. And I just began to speak my heart. It's four minutes of my life that almost six years later, sometimes I wish I had never recorded. But when I look at the impact, I'm thankful that I had the privilege to do it. And I spoke in this video, I wish I would have played it for you today. And I spoke in this video about how our nation needed a voice, needed somebody to stand up. That each of us were hypocrites if we expected problems to be fixed, and yet we sat by and did nothing. I didn't understand what I had begun, but that little video went viral. People began to watch it and people began to talk about how this is a revolution that is being begun by this man. Of course, I'm sitting on the other side watching the comments. I'm like, no, 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 no. This is not a revolution. It's far from that. And people began to talk about this is a citizen's movement. This is a way in which we can challenge this brutal government. And I'm thinking, no, 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 no. It's not a way in which we can challenge. I was just saying we need to fix the country. And I remember sitting with a friend of mine and we thought, how do we fix this? Because I'm about to get into trouble. And this friend of mine said to me, why don't we record another video explaining what you were not saying? And I thought that was a great idea. So we did record a second video explaining what I was not saying. But somewhere in the process of recording that second video, I really began to speak once again about however, I am not backing away from the fact that we need to fix this country and that people need to show up. And that video in itself went viral. And people began to talk about, my gosh, he's come back with a second video. This is amazing. This, we've got to get behind it. And I thought, no, 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 no. This is, not, this is not what I'm doing at all. So we thought, why don't we record a third video <laughs> explaining what I was not saying in the second video and explaining what I was not saying in the first video. And that third video also went viral. By then, we, I realized that this, this was not working. And trying to run from it was never going to work. It was time to embrace it. And so we made the decision with a few friends of mine that we would now begin the process of building a citizen's movement that would speak truth to power, but most importantly, that would speak up for the weak, that would speak up for the poor, that would speak up for the abused in our nation. And it grew and grew and grew to the point where as we began to plan how we speak truth to power, we began to plan protests against some of the actions that the government was doing. 
In 2016, they were talking about introducing a new currency in Zimbabwe, which was similar to the one they had introduced in 2008, where we lost everything. And so we said, no, we can't have it. We cannot have a generation of people robbed twice of their lives by the same government, so we won't take it. We didn't know how many people were listening to what we were doing or how many people were actually involved with what we were talking about in terms of uh, being invested in it. And one of the things we needed to do in calling a protest was to find a way in which we do it safely. And it was a nonviolent protest. Because in Zimbabwe, you're not allowed to protest on the street. It is illegal for you to be on the street and protest. You can only protest when you have permission from the government to do so. It's not a protest, is it, if you get permission? <laughs> and so we thought, why don't we ask this whole nation? Let's ask everyone in this country to stay at home on one particular day of the week. We ask them not to take their kids to school, not to open their businesses. We ask them not to go to work as a way of saying to this government and the, the dictator, Robert Mugabe, enough is enough. Who did we think we were? Our church had just about 60 people on a good Sunday. Okay, fine, Lord. It was 30 people. <laughs> and here we were trying to to move a whole nation of 12 million people. And I'll never forget making that video that went out and I said to our people, I wish that we understood the moment we were in. I wish that we understood the mission on our hands. I wish that we understood the power that we have, but we can't afford to watch people being abused and it's okay. We can't afford to watch injustice and go home and be okay with it. We must do this. We will shut this country down on one particular day. Nobody on the streets. Stay in your homes. You can't be arrested for that. We don't need permission to do that. But let's make this point. That was in July of 2016. And on the 6th of July 2016, I'll never forget that day, after 48 hours of having called for that action, our entire country, the nation of Zimbabwe, came to a complete standstill. Over 12 million people responded to that call. I could not believe it. I sat in my small office both excited and terribly, terribly fearful at the same time at what we had done. I felt like going to knock on people's doors and asking, what is wrong with you? Why would you listen to some random person on Facebook telling you to stay at home, go to work? But something happened in that moment. We had confronted a system. We had confronted an injustice. In the days to come, the regime was not happy. And so I became a hunted criminal. Couldn't live at my house, I went and stayed at a safe house. Eventually my pregnant wife was threatened, my two children, my two young children were also threatened. They threatened to arrest her if I didn't show up. And because those were the people that I was fighting for, it was time for me to face the music. So a week later, I was finally arrested. And I was thrown into Chikurubi Maximum Security Prison in Harare. I was charged with attempting to overthrow a constitutionally elected government. Essentially, it was a treason charge. The most I had ever been arrested for if I can call it an arrest, was to receive a parking ticket. So from a parking ticket to treason is a big jump, I'm sure you'll agree. And I sat in this prison cell completely powerless, on my own and without a plan. 
Because we hadn't planned that far. We hadn't planned for moments like this. This was not something that we thought could happen. But I want to tell you that I experienced miracle after miracle after miracle. As I sat in that prison cell waiting for trial to happen the next day where they would first of all determine whether I was to be given bail or not, one of the police officers came to my cell in the morning just before we took off to go to court and he said to me, we are going to delay going to court because there is a group of people, there's about 200 people that have gathered at the courts that are singing and that are demanding your release. We're gonna send one truck of um, riot police officers, they'll clear them in five minutes, won't take us long. I feared for those 200, I didn't know who they were. He came back an hour later and, and he said, we're still not ready to go because the crowd has grown from 200, there's probably about 500 now, but we're gonna send two trucks of riot police officers, they'll clear them 10 minutes max. He came back an hour later and said to me, we're gonna delay just a little bit longer. It seems the crowd has grown from 500 to about 1,000 people, and we're trying to figure out how we can handle these people. This went on for about five hours until he came back and said to me, the chief of police is asking that you stop telling people to come to the courts because there is about 10,000 people that have gathered at the courts singing and praying and kneeling and asking for your release. I said to him, but how, how have I been telling people to come to the courts? I am here with you. I couldn't believe it. The people that we thought were afraid, the people that we thought were powerless had got it. For the four months that we had been building the citizens' movement, these people were building their courage to act. Eventually, they drove me to the court in an unmarked vehicle with dark glasses so people couldn't see through the windows of the car and drove me through the crowd and I was taken into the courts. There were thousands of people. I couldn't believe what I was seeing. And they sang and they, they worshipped. The court, inside the court was jam-packed. There was standing room only. People had their flags. They stood up. They lined the walls. And there's a moment in which my lawyer stood up at the time who was a man who was appointed to me from the Zimbabwe Lawyers for Human Rights who provide pro bono services to people who are politically persecuted because I couldn't afford a lawyer. And he came to the dock where I stood. I had my Bible with me, I had my flag with me, and I was in handcuffs. And he says to me, Ivan, I need you to understand that this is a very serious moment. That the prosecutor has asked that you not be released at all because of the danger that you pose. And they've asked for the stiffest sentence that they could get, which is 20 years in prison without the option for a fine. And I stood there and I said to my lawyer, I don't understand how I am perceived to be this kind of a threat. I am a pastor, I'm a father, I'm a husband. I have nothing else except my family. And all I wanted was our government to care for those who are oppressed, for those that it oppresses. He went back to sit down and when the judge came in, the judge asked and said, may I see the credentials of the counsel or the lawyer who represents this man? And it's a customary practice, the lawyer is supposed to stand up and present their credentials. As the judge asked for this, I stood in the dock and I'm looking at my lawyer for, ready for him to stand up. About 100 other lawyers stood up at that very moment. And they all presented their credentials. 
it, it, was, it was unbelievable. I could not believe what was happening. And I sat there and I thought, Lord, I don't get it. And he said to me, it was never about you. It was not about you, Ivana. It was about them. It's about people, but I needed one person who could step up. I just needed one person. The night before I had endured a horrible interrogation. And an experience of torture that I am, that I'm still not ready to talk about, maybe another day. But all of that paled to what was unfolding in our nation. By the end of the night, thousands more people had gathered outside the courts. The courts usually close at about 4 p.m. It was 8 p.m. We were still in court. People were gathered outside. They brought candles. They were bringing food to share with each other because they refused to go home. They said, we won't leave until you let him go. Unprecedented. We had never seen this kind of courage in our country. By the end of the night, they had to let me go. And what the government determined to do was to rearrest me the next morning because this was an embarrassment. And so they released me into the crowds. There was jubilant celebration across the entire city. I mean, this, it was like a, like a party had broke. It was like a carnival. People were tailgating and blaring their horns and waving their flags and they were talking about we have found our revolutionary leader and I'm there I'm thinking I don't want to be your revolutionary leader <laughs> after learning that I would be rearrested the next morning I had to make the decision aided on by my wife who said you need to leave she gave me my backpack and she gave me my passport and I was driven six hours across the country in the middle of the night to a small border, small secluded border through which I had to escape. And it was a, a tough moment, first of all, to leave my two children and my pregnant wife. But it is the consequence of what I did because everyone knows that the best time to start a revolution against a dictator is when you have two kids and a pregnant wife, right? But I stood at this border ready to cross and I had to cross out legally through the office where my passport would get stamped. And it was early morning just as this small border in this secluded place was opening. And as we walked in through this border, the, the customs officer and the border patrol officer asked to see my passport. I was one of three people that were the first ones through this border early in the morning. I handed in my passport and I had taken my glasses off. I was putting on a big wide-rimmed cricket hat. If any of you have ever played the game of cricket, Cricket players put on a big hat to cover their faces from being burnt by the sun as they play the game. And I had one of those hats that had been loaned to me by a family that had put me up the night, uh, one, on one of the nights in their safe house. And I'm trying my best not to look at this man and he opens my passport. And because there were no computers at this border, and that's why we chose it, so that I would not be identified if there had been word put out uh, for my arrest. 
which there was. He opened a big ledger and began to write in the ledger. He wrote my name as he had done the person who had gone prior to me. And then he stopped and he, as he was writing my name and he looked up and he says, your surname is exactly the same surname as that pastor in Harare who's causing a lot of trouble. Are you related to him? I didn't know whether to answer him or not. And so I made a very nervous kind of a laugh to try and laugh it off, but it was, was a little too loud. It's a little too obvious. And he laughed back. And that was the end of that conversation. He finished riding off and he handed me my passport. And as he handed me my passport, he pulled it back and he says, just give me one second, I'll be back. He took off and went into a small room and I stood there and I thought to myself, this is where it ends. This is where I'm taken back. He came back, it was not even 40 seconds, he was gone. He came back running, finished off writing, stamped my passport, gave it to me. And I stood there not knowing what to do. Do I stay? Do I go? Like, what are we doing? Are we, have I been caught? What's, this, what's, what's happening? And then he shouted, next, because there was someone else behind me. And I realized in my mind, oh, he didn't realize who I was. And so I took off for the exit. And as I stepped out the door, that man shouted and he said, by the way, Pastor Ivan, you travel safely. I have never run so fast <laughs> for dear life. I didn't respond to him, my heart was beating. I had one more boom gate to cross where there was a soldier. I ran, fa I ran so fast past him without showing him my passport. He called me back, I thought he caught me again. So I went back and he says, let me see your passport. So I showed him, he says, where's the stamp? I showed him the stamp, he goes, okay, you're free to go. And I ran into freedom. But my family was still there, and we needed to get them out. And I remember thinking to myself, what kind of a man leaves his family? But my, my wife, she's, 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 she's small in stature, but she's dynamite. She's and I'll tell you in a minute some of the things that she said to police officers that I would never have dreamt of saying. When they came to search the house, she stopped them in their tracks from searching the house. And she said to them, you're not coming into this house if you don't have a warrant. This isn't a dictatorship. No one needs warrants. You know, but in a few days we were able to we were able to get them out. And after a few more encounters, which I just do not have time to tell, we ended up here in the U.S. My daughter was born here about a month and a half after we arrived. And I was so thankful for her. I had the chance to hold her in my arms. But as time wore on, I felt the Lord say to me, the job was not done. You must go back. I told this to my wife who immediately turned to me and said, if you want to die, I can do that. She's like, I can, I, could, I can kill you myself if that's what you want. But she was gracious. And she said to me, if that's what you feel the Lord calling you to do, then so be it. Two months after my daughter was born, I packed my bags and I headed back to Zimbabwe. Landed back on the 1st of February, 2017. 
And immediately on arrival, I was arrested at the airport before my passport could be stamped. I was taken into a separate room, I was strip searched. And once again, I was arrested and charged with attempting to overthrow the government. That was the second count. This time there was no escape, there was no crowds. And I ended up back in Chikurubi Maximum Security Prison where I was kept in solitary confinement for many weeks. That encounter in itself changed my life and this is where I will end the story as I said. There are many twists and turns to it. But as I was taken into that maximum security prison, the first four people who came to introduce themselves to me were four prisoners. I didn't know what would happen to me at that point. I'd never been in prison, maximum security prison. And I thought these men would beat me because that's what you hear about maximum security prisons, that the first day you go in, you are inducted through beatings. So I thought they would beat me. I thought they would rape me because this is the worst prison in Zimbabwe. And in fact, Chikurubi is rated as one of the worst prisons in the world. Our cell is a cell that was there was no bigger than, 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 this, than this stage. And yet there would be 68 of us in that cell. We slept on the floor, one blanket each. No bathrooms. You had a hole that was in the corner that had another blanket that covered that hole if you needed to relieve yourself. No running water. I can tell you experience after experience in that prison of torture, of humiliation, just to dehumanize me as a person. But these four men approach me on the first day and I'm certain that they're going to beat the living daylights out of me. And I'm standing there and the, the thing I'm trying my best not to do that you should not do, let me just tell you now, if you ever end up in be maximum security prison, the thing I'm trying my best, and don't end up there, please. The thing I'm trying my best not to do is to cry on my first day. Because you cry on your first day, you signal to everybody else that you're weak. Right? These four men come and they stand around me. This guy's name is Charles. I'll never forget Charles. And he put his hand out to me and he says, my name is Charles and I want to welcome you, my friends and I here. We are believers and we have heard about the things that you have been doing. And Charles said to me, I'm serving a life sentence for murder. I accidentally killed somebody in a bar. In a fight, someone attacked my brother. I fought back and I killed the man by accident. Charles was a teacher. The next guy he introduced to me is somebody who had been an armed robber, someone who had, armed, uh, who had, who had been a robber who was uh, robbing uh, uh, stores and shops for cash. He was serving 19 years. The next two guys who came with him were cattle rustlers. They had stolen cattle and they were serving nine years each. And he said to me, my friends and I, we, we've heard about what you, you were doing. And, and, and we have families that are outside that we haven't been able to see for years. And we haven't been able to help them for years. And we heard that you were trying to help our families. And so the four of us, once we heard that you were being brought to this cell, we were, be, we were praying that you would be brought here so that we could have the opportunity to serve you and make sure that by the time you leave this prison, you were stronger. You were stronger than you were when you came in. I'm standing there and I'm trying my best not to cry and it's the only thing that I was able to do. And these tears just start coming down my face because I couldn't believe 
that the God that I thought had abandoned me was still with me and that he was still finding ways to make sure that I knew that the mission he had sent me on was his mission and that he was looking after me the whole way. Those four men became my best friends. They became my strengtheners. On days that I couldn't handle it in that prison, they strengthened me. Convicted prisoners strengthened me. Prayed for me. When I came back from solitary confinement, when I would come back from torture sessions, the four men would get around me and pray with me. The four men would ask me to meet with other men and hear their stories, hear the stories of their families, so that when I left that prison, I'm a better advocate with real stories of real families who have been broken by the system in our country. I left that prison cell more committed to my work than I ever was. I was out on bail. They took my passport away. They gave me strict reporting conditions to the police station so I couldn't leave the country. I was rearrested again another three times after that. One of those times was in the middle of a service just like this. The police walked in and took me from the church. My last arrest was in 2019 of January. 18 armed police officers stormed my house and took me away. Everything I'm saying is documented. You can verify this. If you Google my name, story after story, you'll read enough stories about it. I'm here today not to instill fear, but my hope is that there is an ignition of, of knowing that when God puts something on your heart for you to be of service to other people, he backs you up. Not only does he back you up, but it helps other people. I finally escaped again. Becoming a bit of a habit. If someone starts talking to you about I escaped again, you're kind of like, dude, come on. <laughs> and after three years away from my family, I landed back here. My little daughter, who I'd left when she was two months old, was three years old, didn't know who I was. But I was thankful that she was safe. Let me close with this scripture very quickly because my time is out. In Esther, the book of Esther, in chapter number four, is a story that you all know. Through a series of events, the Jews that were living in this time were being threatened. One man had organized their genocide. One man had convinced the king to kill them. But something happens. There's a young lady, her name is Esther, and she has found her way in becoming the queen. Through a series of events, she becomes the queen. But she's, she's a Jew. But it's a secret. Nobody in the administration knows that she's a Jew. Her uncle, however, who had been instrumental in her upbringing, his name is Mordecai, he's the reason that the Jews are about to be killed because there's a man who hated Mordecai. And instead of just killing Mordecai, which in itself was not okay, this man decided I'd kill Mordecai and all his people. And finally, Mordecai sends a message to his niece, Esther, Queen Esther. Her original name was Hadassah. 
and he sends a message to her. And this is what the message says in chapter number four, in verse number 12. Actually, prior to that, Mordecai had sent the message to her, and she, and she had said that, I'm, I'm, no one, I'm not sure that the, the king will hear me because Mordecai had said we need to do something. And he said, I'm not sure that the king will hear me because you don't just appear before the king. And it says here, when Esther's words were reported to Mordecai that she did not want to go before the king because you don't just appear before the king unless he summons you. The Bible says, when Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back his answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. The three things I will leave with you this morning that I learned in my own life and that I learned even from this story, that sometimes your silence or your refusal to speak up in moments and times of injustice or moments and times when other people need help, your refusal does not exonerate you from the same kind of trouble. There came a point when it found me. I had been quiet for years and wouldn't speak. And here is what Mordecai says to Esther. He says, don't think that you are safe from this just because you are in the palace. And the second thing that he says to her here, he says to her, but even if you don't do it, understand that God will raise someone else. And CLC, I want you to know that. God is never out of people to help those that need help. If you refused, he would raise someone else. And maybe that someone else is here. Maybe God is raising a someone else here to adopt, like we were being told this morning um, by, by uh, where, where is the amazing lady who showed us that? There she is. Maybe, maybe God has raised, maybe there's some other people that refuse and you're the one next that God has said, I'm replacing them with you. But Mordecai goes on to say this as well. And he encourages her, finally. And he says, but however, who knows that you have come to your royal position, but for such a time as, who knows that you have come to your place of influence for such a time as this when someone needs your help. Who knows that you have come to your position of having wealth, of having your needs taken care of, of having all your, your needs are, are, are paid for, of having access to wealth. Who knows that you have come into the relationships you have, you know this person in you. Who knows that you have come into all of that for such a time as this. What I'm saying is that there is, a, there is a reason and a purpose that God places us where he places us. My hope is that you would listen and hear if he's calling you to extend yourself to be a voice or to be a help beyond just yourself. I want to thank you for being a church that incorporates the Great Commission because that is what the life of Jesus was. The life of Jesus was about advocacy. It was about speaking up on behalf of others. If you go to Proverbs chapter 31 and verse 8, say, speak up for those who are weak. To stand up for those who cannot stand for themselves. 
And I'm thankful that as a church, you take that as a mandate. And that that is something that, something that you value. It is close to the Lord's heart. It blesses him and he blesses you for it. I'm going to stop there this morning and ask you to join me in prayer for two things. Maybe three. Or four. But I'd like to ask you to first of all help me to pray for my nation, Zimbabwe, as it goes through yet another challenging season. What we did helped. But things are tough there. Things, unfortunately, are worse than they were before. Second thing I'd like to pray together with you before I walk off is the mandate that God has put on your life. What has he called you to do to accomplish? Some of you are already doing it. Some of you have been doing it for years, and some you are just at the beginning of it. You know what it is, but you're just at the beginning. Some don't know what it is. I'd like to pray with you concerning that, because it is what gives you, it is what gives you the, the joy and the excitement and the expectation of what God could do. It is the opportunity to see God move in miracles and in amazing ways in your life. Nothing draws the miraculous than when you step out in obedience to God's command. You won't see it if you sit where you sit and refuse to do anything, and it's all about bless us for and no more. You won't see God do amazing things. I think those two things will be sufficient. My God, this morning I thank you that I stand with amazing people of faith. And you've instructed me that when I come into the company of such people, to always join my faith with theirs and pray for Zimbabwe. And so this morning I ask my Lord together with them that you would help our nation that you would heal our nation, Zimbabwe, as it goes through what it is going through. My Lord Jesus, you came to bind up the brokenhearted. You came to set the captives free. And we ask this morning that you would do that for the millions of Zimbabweans who find themselves living under oppression. My God, I've seen you do amazing things. I've seen you do what I believed and many believe to be impossible. In a day, you did it. Today I ask that you would break the spirit of fear that grips that nation. That you would break the hold of evil that seeks to brutalize and to dehumanize people. We ask that you would put courage inside Zimbabwean people. Encourage them, Lord, by your spirit and by your word. Thank you, Lord. And now, Father, I want to stand with my brothers and sisters this morning who seek to serve you even more. I pray that you would speak to them as they work, as they move, as they sleep in the night season. Speak to them in dreams and visions about what you would call them to do with their time, with their lives, and with their resources. Thank you, Lord, for those that you have already set on this journey, who have walked this journey faithfully and done what you have said they should do. They have helped. They have stood up where they need to stand up. They have quietly gone in to help where they need to help. Thank you. Encourage those people that it has, it has not been in vain. And I pray, Lord, for those that are on the journey that they're seeking. What is it that you have called them to do? What is it that you are instructing them to do? Where do you want them to be of service? Strengthen them, Lord. 
And when you do, show them amazing things. You say it in your word, call to me, my child, and I will show you great and mighty things that you have not seen before. So, Lord, thank you. I am excited to hear the testimony of what you shall do through your people. Holy Spirit, have your way with us. Lead us and guide us. In Jesus' name, and everybody said amen. amen. CLC, it's been a pleasure speaking with you and ministering with you. May God bless you. May God do well for you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Pastor Bob. Thank you, my friend. I appreciate you. Thank you. Thank you so much, guys. May God bless you. May God bless you. Keep well. Turn it to
how we depart here, this is who our God is. I think as he, as Pastor Vaughn opened up the word and, and Esther's answer, if I perish, I perish, I invite us all to lift up our hearts to our Lord Jesus, who did not say, if I perish, I perish. But he said, knowing that he would perish, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down. And he laid his life down for us. That Second Corinthians 5 says that we no longer live for ourselves, but for him who for our sake died and was raised. Uh, may this be a moment of reinforcing us as the church to live